found on the inside of the bulletin. This is Luke 13, 1 through 9. That's Luke 13, 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord. Well, if I look a little bit disheveled, it was because I woke up in a hotel in Williamsburg this morning. Not disoriented, mind you, wondering how I had gotten there. Rather, my uh, wife was having a college girls weekend, so a bevy of, of women from uh, UVA college days were there, and I was summarily kicked out with my children. And so we did what all people do, we headed to Bush Gardens, and uh, had a great day of it. And uh, Bush Gardens is wonderful at this time of year, you know, it's uh, spring has sprung, and so literally everywhere you go, there are flowers blooming, and it's, uh, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, the older I get, the more I enjoy uh, just looking at the flowers rather than hopping on the, uh, you know, the crazy rides. I know that's kind of pathetic and sad, but there, we're being honest with one another, okay? Uh, this is a great time in our area because uh, spring is springing and uh, the seasons of growing are beginning. And I don't know if anyone's ever gone to the Pungo Strawberry Festival uh, that's coming up, May 28th and 29th. 100,000 people descend uh, upon that area. My wife doesn't let me go because literally I would take every single fruit I could and, uh, and uh, laden down the Honda Odyssey because I love strawberries and blueberries so much. You know, when it's not, see, it's not time for uh, the harvest, I, I drive along and I look at these trees and I look at these fields and I have no idea what they're doing. They're just sort of mounds of dirt, if you will, sitting out there in the field. But you can't tell until the harvest season. And when the harvest season breaks forth, then you're able to understand what exactly is going on in that field. Jesus is speaking here about fruitfulness and barrenness. And he's speaking with harsh words. Uh, this isn't exactly the sort of sermon that often gets preached in churches. Because it speaks of a Jesus who speaks in such a, uh, uh, such a strong way, such a powerful way. Unless you repent, you too will perish. So we need to take a look and understand what is Jesus talking about when he speaks about fruitfulness and repentance. We need to understand that Christianity is more than a hobby. It's about life. 
Jesus is like holding up a giant mirror and he's saying, look into it. I love you so much that I want to tell you the truth. And the truth is always your friend. It's the truth that will set you free. So I want this passage to be for you like a mirror that you hold up in front. Could it be that Jesus is speaking to me? Unless I too repent, I will perish. The three points that I'm going to touch on in this sermon. Number one, we need to recognize barrenness. We need to understand and take a look at our lives and see if there's any fruit to be seen. We have to be honest about ourselves. We need to recognize if there is barrenness within us. Number two, we need to understand fruitfulness. How do this particular crop grow and flourish? How do we grow into the sort of people that God is calling us to be? For surely is calling us to live a fruitful life. And finally, we need to understand what it means to flourish under grace. Christ has come that we might have life and have it to the full. It is love that brings us to bear fruit, that brings us to flourish. Not the stern finger of a father, but rather the loving sacrifice of God our Father. Recognizing barrenness, understanding fruitfulness, flourishing under grace, this is what God has called us to. Because bearing fruit is the surest sign of who it is that we actually belong to. Who is our Heavenly Father? Well, let's begin with our first point, acknowledging and understanding our barrenness. Luke 13, 1, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Apparently, there's some people in the crowd that come to Jesus and this horrible atrocity has occurred. These people have come to sacrifice at the temple and for whatever reason, Pilate, who is the the governor in Jerusalem and of the whole surrounding area has killed them in such a manner right there at the altar where their very blood has mingled with the sacrifice they came to offer. Why are they telling Jesus that? Perhaps it's because these people are Galileans and Jesus is from Galilee. I think they're also maybe asking, uh, telling him because they want to know the reason why has something like this happened? Why has something so bad happened to these people? Seems like they're often bringing up this question, uh, Jewish people in the scriptures. You know, they see a blind person and they say, who sinned? Is it this person or his father? There has to be a reason why something bad has happened to supposedly, I guess, good people. Maybe they're not so good because something bad has happened to them. You know, we do this all the time, right? When something happens, there's a tragedy, there's a death, and we sort of look at it and we say, gosh, he was such a nice person. Can't quite understand why bad things happen to good people. Been reading through the book of Job, and I see this very dynamic going on. You know, Job, who supposedly is a righteous man, all of a sudden his life just collapses all around him. Family members dying, uh, health so on and so on, and his friends come to console him, quote-unquote, and their counsel to him is simply this. Examine your life. There's got to be something wrong with you. You have done something because bad things happen to bad people. And Job is saying, I haven't done anything. So Jesus responds to these people who talk about what's happened to those people over there, the Galileans, 
Jesus turns and he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. It's almost shocking in the way God, uh, Jesus turns it around, right? And as if for emphasis, he says it again. What about those 18 people who the tower fell on in Salome? Maybe they were working on it and they were on the scaffolding and for whatever reason, the, the tower falls on them and they die? Did they do something worse? No, I tell you. But unless you too repent, you shall likewise perish. Why is Jesus doing this? It seems that the people around him don't seem to have a trouble, trouble with their standing before God. As I was scratching my head looking at this passage, I actually started looking through the whole Gospels and seeing Jesus' interaction with people. And I could not find one person troubled by their own sin. Now I found people who came to Jesus, have mercy on me because they were blind or they were a leper or there was something wrong or they came on behalf of another person. But not necessarily for their sin, rather for the malady that, had, that was upon them. In fact, there was only one person I found who was, came before God of their own volition who were troubled by their own sin. And it's a parable that Jesus told. It's not even a real person. It's the tax collector. Remember who comes before God and, and he won't even come near in the temple and he keeps his head down and he beats his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. See, these people aren't troubled with their own sin. In fact, this is where it starts to really get Jesus in trouble. Because Jesus starts condemning people because they're not recognizing the problem, which is their own sinfulness. And out comes the defense. We're children of Abraham. They pull that one out all the time. We're the chosen people of Israel. Or their defense might be, well, we're better than someone else. Whether it's that beggar or sinner over there, or even those people that the tower fell on in Salem, we're better than someone else. Or maybe we're healthy. We're flourishing. We're prosperous. Therefore, God must love us. I love the quote by William Farley. He said, Don't mistake God's patience with sinners for the idea that God is tolerant of sin. See, why Jesus is doing this with these people is that the core issue is they do not recognize that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And so this has been Jesus' teaching all along. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. This word, repent, as long as we're having an old-fashioned church service. Thank you for the confession there, Ken Dodal. You know, it's one we don't hear a lot in church. What exactly does the word repent mean? In the Greek, metanoia is the Greek word. Change your mind is what it means. I prefer the Hebrew, shuv, which means to return. That's why you hear this all the time in the Old Testament. Return to God. In other words, turn around. Change your mind. Change your ways. Why repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, the reason is because the new king that has come is God Almighty. And what happens when the king comes into a kingdom? Well, he expects loyalty from his servants. Those who truly love him and want him to be king. And there are those that don't want him to be king. 
And so John the Baptist, the forerunner of the one who was to come, remember him? He comes and he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And he said, therefore, to the crowds coming out to be baptized to him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The axe, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, this is why Jesus came. To turn sinners to himself. Otherwise, there was really no need for a cross, was there? Now, the truth of the matter is I can look at the Israelites, sort of condemn them, but we often do the same thing as the Israelites, don't we? When we may not be Jewish, maybe there are some uh, ethnic Jews among us, but we uh, live in a Christian nation, quote-unquote. Right? We have a Bible on our, you know, in our house, maybe a couple of them. We're Christians. We live nice lives. We can always find someone that lives worse than us, right? The guy on the right or the guy on the left. Or we're healthy and we're happy and we're prosperous. Therefore, God surely has his blessing upon us. But Jesus will have none of it. Jesus is forcing them and he forces me to face the darkness in my own heart. So you think I'm a nice guy, right? I'm wearing the robe. I know the scriptures. But the truth of the matter is, I tried to take over the position of God himself, being God of the universe. And so have you. And what Jesus is saying to us is we've got to stop playing games. Because if I don't begin at the right starting place, my spiritual condition, I'll never get to the right conclusion. I remember as a wee young lad, I was playing peewee football and I was the quarterback of the team. I looked like a bobblehead out there on the field. And it was one of the first games, and I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I had the ball, okay, and I, maybe it was a, uh, maybe it was a uh, kickoff or something like that. And, you know, I was running it back, and I sort of got pinballed in between a bunch of people, you know, where they're bouncing you back and forth, back and forth. And somehow I got disoriented. But I saw a clearing, a straight path to the end zone. And so I started running with all my might. And the crowd erupted as they saw what was going to happen. It's going to run back a, 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 you know, a kickoff and I was going to achieve instant glory. What I did not realize was I was running in the wrong direction. And I sprinted, spurred on by the crowd as they were chanting, no, no, no. Scoring. See, I got the wrong direction. I somehow got the wrong starting point. And the truth of the matter is, when you get into the wrong starting point, you'll never get to the right conclusion. So Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that involves us acknowledging of who we are. Acknowledging the barrenness in our lives. Acknowledging that we deserve death and punishment. Acknowledging that we need a Savior. 
See, one of the reasons why grace is so amazing is because there's a wretch like me. And if we don't believe that, we're never going to connect the dots. So how do you speak to Jesus? Is it them or is it me? Is it fix them? Well, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you ever lowered your eyes, not willing to look up to heaven, and said to God, I am not worthy to come into your presence. I am not worthy of your forgiveness. See, when you start at the right place, I'm a sinner deserving death. When you acknowledge your barrenness, now God can work in your heart. Because when you acknowledge your barrenness, you must also acknowledge His holiness. That He is a holy God. That His standard for your life is greater than that of the world or whatever standard we want to adopt to justify ourselves. We must acknowledge our barrenness. Acknowledge His holiness. And also acknowledge His judgment. That there is a time in which my life will be tested. In which I will be examined by the one who made me. Even a deist like Thomas Jefferson said, Indeed I reflect and tremble when I know that God is just and His justice will not sleep forever. We must acknowledge our barrenness before we are ready to move into a, a time of repentance. This brings me to my second point. Understanding the role of fruitfulness. Jesus goes on to tell a parable after he zings the crowd with this scathing remark. He says, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Excuse me. <clears throat> and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Okay, we see in this parable, there's actually a three parts to this parable. There's a discovery. There's a decision. And there's a delay. A discovery, a decision, and a delay. First, the discovery. This man had a fig tree planted and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. Now, how did this fig tree come to be? Well, the man chose it. Apparently, he owned the land. It's his vineyard. And in fact, they still do these things. The soil in a vineyard is very rich. And so you can plant other trees in that vineyard to take advantage of the soil. Well, this man wanted figs, this fruit to benefit himself. And so he had it planted in his vineyard, apparently by this vine dresser, I'm not exactly sure. But he comes looking for fruit. In fact, apparently he comes near, it looks like. He comes seeking fruit on it. He can see it from afar. He can see that there's foliage on the tree, but that doesn't mean there's necessarily fruit. Is there foliage or fruit? That's what he wants to know. And so he comes. And what is it that he finds? He finds that there's no fruit. It's barren. See, there's a discovery process to this. And there's a discovery process to our life. There's a time when the one who made us, the one who created us, comes to look at our life. Is there simply foliage or is there fruit? Well, apparently... There's no fruit. 
For he says to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? The discovery goes to the decision. In fact, for three years he's come seeking fruit. Now this is a wise man. He owns a vineyard. He's given time for the fruit to grow up. We don't know uh, for the tree to grow up to bear fruit. But for the last three successive years, he's been coming and no fruit. And so he makes a decision, cut it down. It's taking, but it's not producing. Now we can ask the question, what right does he have to do this? The answer is all the right in the world, right? He's the one that decided that the tree was to be planted. He chose what tree it was to be. He's the one that has cared for it for the last however many years. It's his tree. It's the same thing you do in your yard, right? What right does it have? What right does the tree have? The tree has no rights. It belongs to another. And so this decision process eerily parallels the process that we all must go through. For Hebrews 9.27 says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And what does this judgment look like? We are judged by our lives, by our works. In what way? 2 Corinthians 5.7, we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please Him. Whether we are at home in the body, meaning living, or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now the question is, is our life a determiner of whether we will be saved or not? The answer is no. Our life is rather a demonstration of who we are. See, the problem with the man is not with the fruit, is it? problem with the man is with the tree something wrong with the tree if the tree is right it will demonstrate in its life the fruit that is coherent with what it is and in the same way our life and our works will be tested not to determine our salvation but rather to demonstrate who we are and so we see this language again and again, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Examine your life to see whether you are in the faith or not. The Bible calls us to test our lives, to take a look, to see. The Bible calls us to fruitfulness. What is fruitfulness? The fruitfulness of a Christian. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of a Christian love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. These are the manifestations, if you will, of a life that is spirit-led. We are fascinated and obsessed in the Christian world with the works of the Spirit. Do you have oratory gifts or can you speak in tongues or can you do all of these things? The Bible cares about 
is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is your character. It's who you are. You can't simply disengage this passage from every other one. The Bible also says if we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are times when we're not loving. There are times when we're not faithful. There are times when we're not gentle and self-controlled. The examination is not for perfection, but rather for fruitfulness. Is my life manifesting more and more the characteristics of the one who is within me? See, true repentance must bring fruitfulness. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God has planted a new seed in us. He's taken out the stony soil of our heart and he's put in a good heart. And within that new creation, it would make perfect sense that we would have new desires. We would have new loves. Does not the scripture say the good man brings good things out of the good stored in his heart and the bad man brings bad things out of the bad stored in his heart for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, the truth of the matter is the Christian must act different because he or she is different. Fruitfulness is tied to our nature. Last fall, or maybe it was two falls ago, we went, uh, me and my family, we went to the Carter Mountain Orchard in Charlottesville. Anybody been to the Carter Mountain Orchard? It's up there in, in Charlottesville, which is hallowed ground uh, because it's in Charlottesville. And it's this giant, giant uh, orchard with all of these different types of apple trees, the Carter Mountain Apple Orchard. I had no idea there were so many types of apples, okay? Do you know that there's the Albemarle Pippin apple? It's rich, it's crisp, it's fine flavored. It's fantastic. There's the Empire apple, more sweet than tart, extra crisp. The ginger gold, okay, the Granny Smith. I know the Granny Smith and the Red Delicious. What about the Pink Lady? Truth of the matter is if it's not Red Delicious or Granny Smith, they all look the same to me. They all taste the same to me, right? But apparently there's some fine varieties of these different apples but the truth of the matter is they're all apples if I was to go along and I'd be picking the apples whichever ones they were and I reached up and lo and behold there was a kumquat can you grow a kumquat on a tree by the way I don't know there's a totally different type of fruit I'd scratch my head going wait a second this doesn't look like anything else would I curse the tree or the fruit? This apple has produced a plum. This is ridiculous. No, I would have to come to the conclusion that this is not an apple tree. It's a plum tree. See, that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, unless you repent, unless you turn back to me, unless you give me your heart and your life and submit, unless you acknowledge your barrenness, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This ground is stony, and it's hard, and I can't do anything with it. And in the end, the only thing you're going to produce is, is uh, thistles and thorns. God calls us to fruitfulness. 
And fruitfulness comes when we recognize our barrenness. And we surrender our hearts to the Lord. This brings me to my final point. How do we do that? How do we do that? You know, the greatest distance between two points, they've said, is 18 inches, right? From the human head to the human heart. My knowledge moving to changing my heart. And that's the beauty of this whole message. That we flourish under grace. I said there were three points to this parable, right? Discovery, decision, the third was delay. I've been talking about the owner, but what about the vine dresser? The owner is ready to put the axe to the tree. But the vine dresser says, sir, let it alone this year also. Until I dig around it and take care of it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. Why does he even care? I mean, the vine dresser's been putting time into this thing for all of this time, right? Why does he even care? Just get rid of the thing. It's useless. It's worthless. No, the vine dresser sees something. He has confidence in what the tree will be. Even more so, he has confidence in what he can make the tree to be. What's so amazing about grace is that I am a wretch and yet He cares. See, it's Jesus Christ that has the ability to take my stony heart, to woo it with His love, to fertilize it with the blood of His cross and to change me into a new creation. It's Christ and His love for me. It's His weight. I'm not done with this one. I'm not willing to let it go. I'm willing to care for it, even at the cost of my life. Jesus Christ is the one that allows me to flourish under grace. He's the one that allows me to recognize my barrenness and not be destroyed by it. And ultimately, He's the one who strengthens me and gives me passion and purpose for producing fruit. You know, all analogies ultimately break down in the end, right? There's a movement in the Christian world. It's called the higher life movement. It sounds very, very gracious and beautiful. You know, if you wander into an orchard or whatever, you, you won't hear the fruit stressing and straining. It simply will produce. Let go and let God but we're not trees, are we? We're people with passions and desires and wills and volitions. And we have the ability to choose who we will serve and choose who we will love. It's very clear that producing fruit in the Scripture takes stretching and straining. Make every effort to add to your faith, love. To this end, I labor with all of his energy that works within me. See, it's not really love if it doesn't come from my heart. It's not really love if my muscle isn't a part of it and my heart isn't a part of it. 
See, it's His grace and His love which changes my heart. It's not that I simply produce automatically. It's that I have a choice in how I live. That even the littlest thing is a decision of love for my God, the one who loved me, who cares for me, who came for me, who died for me, and who rose for me. God is calling us more to simply than simply being unconscious fruit producing vehicles. We are people that have the choice to love have the choice to live by faith. Have the choice to live with patience and kindness and goodness. We may not have the strength, but He does. And He says, if you'll choose to love me, I'll give you what you need to bear fruit. So look at your life. Am I bearing fruit? Do I care whether I'm bearing fruit or not? Your life is ultimately a demonstration of your heart. And when you don't feel like being kind or gracious, remember the vine dresser who said, wait, I will step in. I will fertilize. I will care for this one. And I will bring it from death to life. You were bought with a price, brothers and sisters. So honor God when no one's looking, when everyone's looking, when it's the biggest decision of your life or when it's the smallest, smallest thing. I think it will be an exciting time when the final judgment occurs. We may think, well, I haven't produced much. But God is always faithful. And the life of a Christian will bear fruit. Fruit that will last. So let us be like that person in Psalm 1 who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in God's law. And on it he meditates day and night so that he may be careful to do everything written in it. He will prosper and bear fruit at all times. This is the beauty of a vibrant living Christ living in God's people. Bearing fruit is the surest sign of who you belong to. So look in the mirror. Do I see the indelible trace of God's face, maybe faintly, but it's there. I see Him in me, and I want to see more and more of Him as God uses me to bring life to the world. This is what you were made for. This is what you were remade for. So walk in the life of Christ, and you will bear fruit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you came to bring the truth. Lord, what's so amazing about your grace is that I am a wretch and yet you choose not to cut me down. 
Lord, but rather to build me up. Lord, help me to walk in obedience. Help me to walk in your grace. Lord, help me to put my muscle and my mind and my life and my talents into expressing my love for you in the way that I live and love the people around me. And may we bear fruit, Lord, for your glory, that the world might know that you are in us. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. We now have the opportunity um, to, in our service to offer, make, make offerings to our God. Um, Fruit-bearing, it uh, comes in several areas of our lives. Um.